my folks. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And you join us partway through Season 3, where we've been working together through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're starting a new chapter, chapter 13, and we're looking at parables, the truth about parables. So I do hope you'll find it helpful. If you're here for the first time, please stick around at the end and I'll tell you find ways which you can connect with the ministry and receive lots of other free additional biblical teaching resources. So with that all said, you are most very welcome. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you at the back end. Bye for now. Okay, people, here we are today, starting off a new chapter, Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at just the first nine verses today, and looking at the parables of Jesus that are now going to start appearing, and asking some questions about what they mean, and the truth about parables in particular. So by way of introduction, I think it's useful to consider, really, what's going on here, and why Jesus chose to use parable. We identified a few days ago that Matthew chapter 12, which we've just exited, was a very important chapter in the pattern of this gospel. This is because it showed a definite turning point in the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, we find him mainly teaching in the hearing of the religious leaders. Yeah, he was in the synagogues or near the synagogues. But now, since then, we find him teaching in different places, on the seashore, on the hillside. And the change is very significant. It's not that the door of the synagogue was finally completely shut to him, but it was definitely closing. Even so, in and around the synagogues, he could still, to an extent, find a welcome from the ordinary people. But the official leaders of the religious hierarchy were now in open opposition to him. When he appeared at or outside the synagogue, it would often be the case that he would find an eager crowd of ordinary people listening, but he would also find a very critically thinking group of scribes and Pharisees and elders criticizing him or just sifting and examining every word he said in order to see if they could bring charges against him, watching his every action in the hope of their being able to bring an accusation against him. It is one of the really ironic tragedies that Jesus was blocked from what was, I suppose, the church of his day. But of course, that did not stop him from bringing the message to ordinary men and women. When the doors of the synagogue were finally closed to him, he just took to the open air and he taught the people in the town streets and on the roads and by the lakeside and even in their own homes. Today still, I believe, the great man or woman of God, the one who has the real message and wants to deliver it and a real desire to deliver it, will always find a way of giving that message to other people. Now, the great interest for many in this next chapter 13, which we're picking up in today, is that we are going to see Jesus beginning to use in full his characteristic method of teaching, which was the use of parables. Now, even before this, he had used a way of teaching which always had the sort of the germ of the parable idea in it. If we think about the simile of the salt and light, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, or the image of the birds and the lilies in Matthew chapter 6, or the story of the wise and foolish builder in Matthew 7, 
the illustrations of the garments and the wineskins in chapter 9, and even just a few days ago we looked at the picture of children playing in the marketplace and how Jesus used all those. They're all sort of proto-parables in the fact that they paint truth using mental images. But in this chapter, we find Jesus' way of using parables is now being more fully utilised and it's been done at its most brilliant. As someone has said about him, whatever else is true of Jesus, it is certainly true that he was one of the greatest masters of the short story who ever lived. But before we begin to study these actual parables in detail, let us ask why Jesus chose to use this method. What are the advantages, do you think, of him teaching in this way? Well, firstly, the parable can make abstract truth concrete. You see, only some people can grasp and understand difficult or abstract ideas. Most people in reality think in pictures. Now we can use long, lengthy narrative dialogues to try and put into words, for example, what a lovely person is like. But in the end, a large section of people would be none the wiser. But if we can point at someone that we all agree and say, look, that person's a lovely person, then in a sense, no more description is needed. We might try and define goodness, and in the end, our fancy words may leave no clear idea of what it means to be good in people's mind. But everyone, I suspect, recognises a good person and a good deed when they see it. So in order to be a great communicator, every word must in fact become flesh. Every great idea must take form and shape in personhood. And the first great quality of a parable is it that it can turn truth into a picture or an image which all men and women can see and understand. The second benefit of teaching with parables, well, it's been said that all great teachers aim to get us to where we need to be. And the root definition of the word educate actually just means to lead someone in a defined direction. In other words, towards a goal. If anyone wishes to teach people things which they don't currently understand, then they must begin with the common ground of the things which we do understand. And the parable usually begins with material which everybody in the audience listening can understand because it utilizes the listener's own experiences. And from that, it leads them on to things which they do not understand at that point, but opens their eyes to things that perhaps they've been unable to understand or even see. The parable, therefore, is just a tool to open people's minds and eyes by beginning where they are and leading them to where they ought to be. Thirdly, the great advantage of using the parable to teach is that it catches people's attention. The surest way to interest people is to tell them stories. A parable actually puts truth in the form of a story. The simplest definition of a parable is the fact that it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. People's attention cannot be retained unless they are interested, and with most people it is stories which awaken and maintain interest, and the parable is simply that type of story. In addition to that, fourthly, the parable has the benefit of enabling someone to discover the truth for themselves. It requires the hearer to be engaged and to think about what is being said. And in a sense it says, here's a story, see what truth you can find in it. What does this mean to you? Think it out for yourself. 
There are some things we cannot be told because we need to discover them for ourselves. Unless we discover the truth for ourselves, it remains a sort of an external thing, a second-hand thing outside of ourselves. Furthermore, unless we discover the truth for ourselves, it's very likely that we will forget it and forget it quickly. The parable, by forcing us to draw our own conclusions and to do our own thinking for ourselves, at one and the same time makes truth real to us and it fixes it in our memory. Another final important aspect of the parable, one which I think is really overlooked a great deal of the time, is the fact that a parable will also conceal truth from those who are either too set in their ways to think for themselves or are too blinded by prejudice to see. You see, the parable puts the full responsibility fairly and squarely on the shoulders of the individual listening. It reveals truth to those who desire to find truth, and in a sense it conceals truth from those who do not wish to see that truth in the first place. In our study of the parables that are coming up now in this chapter and beyond as we press through Matthew, it's important to take account of this, and in our approach to a parable, take account in a sense of two main things in particular. Firstly, when approaching any parable, we need to gather some detail about the background of the situation of the life of the people in Palestine that it's referring to. That way the parable is more likely to strike us as it did those who heard it for the first time 2,000 years ago. We must try in a sense and place ourselves into the minds of those who are listening to Jesus. Secondly, it means that generally speaking, a parable will only have one point. It's important to recognise that a parable is not an allegory. An allegory is a story in which every possible detail has an inner meaning or a spiritual meaning, but an allegory has to be read and studied. A parable simply needs to be heard. We must be very careful not to make allegories out of parables and to remember that they are designed to make simply one truth Create, if you like, a light bulb moment in the mind of the one hearing it for the first time. So with that in mind, let's look at the first of these parables that Jesus talks about in chapter 13. The parable of the sower. Let me just read the first nine verses of chapter 13 to you. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them about many things in parable, saying, and this is the first, The sower went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, and the plants were scorched, they withered, because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good ground, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So here we have it, a picture where everyone listening to it would have understood what it was getting at. Here we see Jesus using an everyday example that people would understand, And he does that by saying the sower went out to sow. 
Jesus began with something which at that moment they could actually envisage in their open mind. Maybe they could look across from where he was talking and see people actually sowing seeds as Jesus spoke. Anyway, they were able to open their minds to a truth by using this technique which perhaps had gone unseen to them up to this point. Now in Palestine at that time there were two main ways of sowing seed. Firstly it could be sown by the sower, scattering it widely as he walked up and down the field. Of course, if the wind was blowing, the seed could be caught by the wind and blown to all kinds of places and sometimes it could even be blown out of the field altogether. The second way was to put a sack of seed on the back of a donkey and to cut or tear a hole in the corner of the sack and then to walk the animal up and down the field while the seed ran out. Now in such a case some of the seed might well dribble out while the animal was crossing the pathway before it reached the field or as it circulated between the end of one row and the beginning of the next. Now in Palestine in the main the fields were long narrow strips and the ground between the strips was always considered a right of way. It was used as a common path, but that meant it became compressed hard by the permanent passing of the feet of countless passers-by. Now this is what is meant by the biblical term used here, wayside or path, depending which Bible version you're reading. If the seed fell there, and there was bound to be some fall there, then regardless of whatever way they were choosing to sow it, there was little chance of that seed penetrating the path, the wayside path, because it had fallen on hard soil. Now the stony ground was another type of soil, which was, we're not only thinking here about a ground filled with stones, it was also a term used at that time to describe what was common in Palestine in those days, areas where a thin skin of earth lay on top of an underlying shelf of limestone rock. In many places, many acres in fact, the soil, the earth, was only a few inches deep before the hard rock was reached. On such ground, if you tried to sow seed, then they would certainly initially germinate, but because there was no depth to the earth, the seed could not put down roots in search of nourishment and moisture. It would only meet rock, and it would soon be starved to death and die. Thorny ground is of course also mentioned here, and this type of soil was deceptive. When a sower was sowing, the ground might look clean enough. It is easy to make a garden or a field look clean by simply turning over the soil, but if it hadn't been sieved, then the ground within it still held the fibrous roots and the seeds of the weeds and grass that would be ready to immediately spring back to life again. I'm sure if you're a gardener, every gardener knows that weeds grow much faster and with more strength than most newly sown seeds can achieve. They get outgrown very quickly. And the result here that he's talking about was that the good seed is overwhelmed by the dominant weeds. They initially grow up together, but the weeds grow quicker and they throttle the life out of the young seedling. However, he finishes by saying the good soil was a soil that was deep and soft and the seed could gain an entry. It could find nourishment. It could grow unhindered and in time it could bring forth an abundant harvest. Okay, so that's the first of the parable. And like all of them, all of these parables are actually aimed at two sets of people. Firstly, of course, it's aimed at those who heard it on the day. 
and it's generally thought by Bible experts that the interpretation of the parable that follows later on for us, which we look at next time, is not the interpretation given by Jesus himself on that day, but the interpretation added by Matthew himself later. It is the interpretation which identifies the various kinds of soil that had been used in the example here, and the interpretation identifies those soils with different types of hearers. Now, this has always been the perspective that's held at the thought of what this passage means throughout church history. And surely Matthew added it, or at least, at the very least, an authoritative source quoting Matthew added it, because they wanted to make clear to us, the audience today, something that would have been immediately understood to the gathered group listening to what Jesus said at that time. If we understand this parable in that way, we can see this parable is there to warn the hearers that there are different ways of accepting the word of God, and the fruit which it will produce will depend on the heart of those who receive it. The outworking of any spoken insight, any spoken word, always will depend on the hearer's response. But people can receive it in different ways. Firstly, there are those who will listen with a shut mind. In the first place, their mind is shut anyway. There are people in whose minds the word has no more chance of gaining traction and that seed flourishing than it had on that hard ground, treading hard by the passing of many feet. There are many people who will shut their mind to the truth because they're prejudiced. Prejudice can make a person blind to everything. Anything and everything they do not wish to see. It creates an unteachable spirit, and that unteachable spirit creates a barrier which cannot easily be broken down. The unteachable spirit can be a result of one of two things. It can be the result of pride, which does not think that it needs to learn anything new, or it can in fact be the result of fear. Fear of a new truth creates a refusal to think that way. Sometimes an immoral outlook or someone's way of life can also shut their minds to the truth. There may be truths which condemn things that they have previously done or which accuses things that they are currently doing. And that means that for such people, those such people often will refuse to listen or to recognize the truth because in a sense it condemns their current way of life. For there are none so blind as those who will deliberately not see. And thirdly, there are the listeners whose minds are indeed like the shallow ground. They are the type of people who fail to think things through whenever they hear something new. Some people are at the mercy of every new craze. They take up a thing quickly and they drop it just as quickly. They embrace the latest idea only to drop it when something new comes along. Some people's lives are littered with things that they have begun and never finished. A man or a woman can be like that when their approach to the word of God. When they hear something, it may appear that they are initially swept off their feet with an amazing emotional reaction. But no one can live just on emotion for very long. A Christian faith has within it a moral obligation to have an intelligent, reasoned thought through faith. Christianity makes demands of us, and those demands must be faced and accepted. The Christian offer of God's salvation is not only a privilege, but it also brings with it a responsibility. A sudden enthusiasm can quickly become a dying fire unless we take the word of God seriously and apply 
our rigorous thought in its application. And thirdly, there are those who might hear, and because they've so many interests in life, the main thing gets crowded out. They may initially react positively, but with everything else pressing in, it gets lost in the hubbub. It's a characteristic of modern life that things are becoming increasingly more and more manic. New things crowd in on us every day. We can become too busy to pray, or we can become so preoccupied with other things that we forget to study the Word of God. The business of everyday life can take such a grip of us that we're too tired to think of anything else. Now, it's not always the things that are obviously bad which can be spiritually dangerous to us. Often it can also be things which are good, in a sense, good in moderation, but they can become obsessive and thereby they can become an enemy in itself. It may be that we forget to pray or do Bible study or even neglect meeting with other believers. It can be that we intend to make time for these things, but somehow in our crowded life we just never get round to it. But finally, thankfully, there is the individual who is like the good ground. And like the good ground, their mind is open and fertile. Such people are always willing to learn and are prepared to listen. They are also never too proud or too busy to listen and they have thought the thing out and they know what it means and means for them and they're prepared to accept that the changes that enforces upon their lives. And they also, importantly, they are the ones who translate what they hear into action. They produce the fruit of the good seed because the real listener is the one who listens, who understands, but also the one who obeys and does what God says they should do. Okay, people, I do hope you find that helpful. It's great to have you along with us on this journey, a journey to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And if you'd like to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life, then can I recommend that you click on the subscribe button wherever you're receiving this podcast from. That way you'll never miss another single episode. And if you are enjoying it and have been along with us for a while, can I also ask that you consider liking or sharing it or even reviewing this podcast. That way it will bring the good news of the Bible can be brought within the orbit of more and more people. Give them the opportunity also to accept the study, not just the reading, but the study of the Word of God. Podcast is hosted on the Bibleproject.buzzsprout.com. So if you're not seeing active links to all those places where you can connect with the ministry and receive other teaching resources and also partner with us if you feel God's calling you to do that, then you will certainly find active links at the Bibleproject.buzzsprout.com. So with that all said, thank you so much for joining me again today, friends. It's a real pleasure and a privilege for me to be doing this and have the experience of preparing this every day in the knowledge that there are thousands, nay tens of thousands of people around the world who've made the decision to go on this journey with me as we study through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So thank you again, and I do trust I'll see you right back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. 
ביי פנאו.